I'm sitting here in my own house, minding my own business. Where you been? I don't think you can. I've been having a hell of a time. When I'm bad. End of question and answer period. Welcome to High Camp, where my guests and I watch the old queer movies that no one else is talking about. I'm your host, Brian Rucker. Thank you for listening. Uh, so this is my first episode, and I'm very excited to have as my guest, my uh, podcast co-host for my other podcast, my writing partner, my good friend, Aggie Hewitt. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I mean, it's weird. It's on It's on my turf. It's at your house, but other than that, it's pretty similar. Pretty, yeah, pretty much the same, except yeah. uh, if you guys... You guys if you're listening to this first episode, you probably listened to our other podcast, Goop Yourself. Sure. Um, so just be forewarned, we're not going to talk about Gwyneth Paltrow on this podcast. Yeah, for one. Well, she might come up. Who knows? You never know with her. I don't her. know. She, she pops up everywhere. <laughs> she does. <laughs> um, so I, well, by the time this comes out, I will have put out like a little intro episode that talks more in depth about what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Yeah. But basically, um, I read these books, these gay film guides from the 90s by a guy named Paul Rowan, um, who wrote reviews of like 400 movies that he said has intrinsic interest to homosexuals. And so I just want to like watch as many of them as possible and talk about them with people. And you've probably seen a lot of them. You know, it's weird because, and that's sort of one of the reasons I wanted to do this was like I've seen, I mean, I'd seen Suddenly Last Summer before. That's the movie we're going to talk about today. Um, and I've seen most of the big ones, like All About Eve and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, but that's probably only maybe 40 or 50 of the ones, it, like there at most. There are so many movies on that list. There's so many. There's so many totally like obscure ones that n- that are not you know streaming. They're not on DVD. Deep um, cuts. Totally deep yeah. cuts. Like whole genres. I mean, these you know serials of superheroes from the 40s that... Maybe I can convince some like straight guys to come on this podcast if I'm like, oh, we're going to talk about the original uh, like Captain Marvel or whatever. There's just so many movies that like I want to see, I want to talk about with people, and hopefully, I don't know, bring some attention back to... Because I think in, like movies in general, older movies, that you have sort of the canon yeah. of you know the top 100 movies or whatever, but there's literally you know tens of thousands of movies that no one watches anymore. Yeah, and sometimes I avoid watching old movies because sometimes it makes me sad because, you know, I was really close with my grandparents and, you know, they're gone now and that's kind of where we are in our lives that this whole generation of people are are gone and sometimes it hurts to look at that stuff even yeah. even if it's just like oh, like my grandma showed me this or my grandpa would have loved this or whatever. But when you kind of have a reason to say I'm going to just sit down and watch an old movie, that goes away so fast and you're just enjoying it in a way that you don't enjoy modern movies. I mean, the pacing is different. You put your phone down and you're just actually invested in a story in a way that I don't feel like I really watch movies that like in theaters right now. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's a different pacing. It is, it's like slower. And I think, you know, black and white is obviously a barrier for some people. Yeah. The writing and the acting style can seem a little outdated. They seem outdated, but 
I remember when I was little, I would watch old movies and think, how come people talk like that in old movies? But now when you watch whatever a Marvel movie or something, there's still a style of talking and a cadence that people have on film that they do not have in real life. It's, not it's just so sick, yeah. it's just changed what it is, but it it's still not like normal. Yeah. 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 It, it's like it's just sort of the whatever the style that audiences are accustomed to watching and yeah. then you just sort of trick yourself into thinking that it's normal but, but it's, it's all it's, it's just normal because you see it so often yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. uh and yeah i will talk about in this movie i felt like and i loved suddenly last summer but it does feel like all three of the main actors were in totally different movies in some respects um yeah well yeah i mean not totally different movies maybe but they all have like very different acting styles yeah i mean i thought that well, I thought Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift were both kind of doing. They kind of made me feel like I'm watching. All right, these are like '50s naturalist, like Strasburgy sort of people. Yeah, him especially, especially him. Um, but she was also, even though she has her moments in this movie for sure. Uh, and Catherine Hepburn is definitely not. She's at a eleven. Yeah, but it's great. But it's beautiful. Um, so. Before we start going into detail, okay, sorry. Last summer, uh, what are you watching? Are you watching anything fun now? Like, oh, that you'd want to talk like well, tell people about. I mean, like a TV show. Yeah, like what have you been watching this week? Well, this week, last not last night, but the night before, I watched the first episode of the new season of Black Mirror. Oh, and I love Black Mirror. I feel like it's sort of embarrassing to really like it people i think people kind of think it's a little i don't know overwritten or kind of dorky but i just i don't know i love it yeah it's it's definitely become less cool like before it was on netflix and you had to sort of figure out how to watch it from like british tv it was very like hip to get into black mirror and then now i I haven't even watched like the last two seasons i don't think the first episode i don't want to spoil anything but the first episode of this season i I don't want to say anything about it but is it the miley cyrus one or the the, the, i feel like i've heard a lot about Maybe two of the episodes. Well... The one about the guys playing video games. Yeah, yeah. that's the first one. And so it's these two guys, like two straight guys who play this video game that's like Mortal Kombat, but it's in the future. So when they play it, it's like total, like like full, fully immersive. And yeah. they like are in the bodies of these other characters that they play. And, you know, their relationship takes all these wild turns because of that. And it's... It just, there's no other way that you could really explore, like, gender, sexuality, um, like, human relationships. Like, what, you can ask questions like, what is love? What is the difference between friendship love and romantic love? In these, like, these really broad themes that I don't know, that are just, like, very easily explored in these like high concept science fiction scenarios that they come up with on that show. I just, I don't know. I love it. I can't help it. I like it. That's cool. I'll check it out. I've also been watching Deadwood, which I had never seen before. I just watched the pilot two nights ago because I really want to watch all of it. Yeah, it's Um, great. Yeah, it was so good. And it it was funny because I feel like there was that period of, of TV that there were shows like Deadwood and The Wire and The Sopranos to some extent, super dense 
tons of characters you really had to pay attention. Yeah. And I feel like TV, I mean, has gotten more broad, but it's all, almost sort of reverted back to like um, the mean of, yeah. of entertainment. And, sure. not, and this, I was like, oh shit, I really have to pay attention to yeah, this Yeah, it's challenging. Yeah. It's challenging. The language is challenging. You have to listen. You have to, it's not really easy to binge it. No. Although I kind of have been binging it. But, you know, I watch it with my phone in my hand the same way I watch everything. Okay. And I, if I do that, I will like lose. I have to put it down. Yeah. So I'll, I'll be like, wait a second. What, who, what is it? What's going on here? Uh, uh, yeah. I had to be sort of patient with myself because I was, I was getting frustrated, not really understanding everything that was happening. Right. Um, and I was like, oh no, you, I'll, I will, I'll get it. I trust myself. And the, the language is just so beautiful. Like, I know. His writing is like unparalleled in TV. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. It, the language. It actually sort of reminds me of Tennessee Williams a little bit because it's it's like super heightened and poetic, yeah. um, but still talking about like real like real things. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's an iambic pentameter. Is it show. really? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Isn't that cool? That's amazing. Yeah. Cool. So Black Mirror, Deadwood. Two, Two great recommendations. TV shows. Um. All right. So we're going to talk about Suddenly Last Summer. Yay! Uh... What made you, like, because I sent you the list of, whatever, 400 million movies that you could choose from. What made you, and immediately, this was the one you wanted to Yeah, this was my first choice, and I'm really happy that I got to do it. Um, Well, I saw a bunch of movies on the list that I had seen, but suddenly last summer was one that I remembered from my, you know, adolescence. I, it had a special place in my heart because I love Tennessee Williams so much, um, I went to theater school when I was a kid, like you did. And, um, I, I studied theater from the time I was like little, little till college. Yeah. And, um, Tennessee Williams was just, they give you all these plays that you have to read when you're going through theater school and theater training. And the vast majority of them that they tell you are like important or good or whatever are about, middle-aged men who didn't get enough money in their life and want to kill themselves. Like, that's what they're all about. Arthur Miller, Eugene O'Neill, Chekhov to some extent. I mean, Chekhov too, really, I guess. I mean, yeah, but really I was thinking about, like, Arthur Miller and Eugene O'Neill. Like, the American plays are kind of just sort of whatever. But then Tennessee Williams was just, they were like, and this is, is like, the third most important playwright, Tennessee Williams. And all of his plays were about these, like, insane women who were aging out of being beautiful and like desperate to survive and their families were completely fucked up and they were being abused by men and they were being abused by their mothers and they just like were all and they were really hot they were all sweating they were all in (laughs) new orleans and they were drunk all the time and they were just always crying and freaking out about their lives and i just i related to it so much i loved i loved his plays and then I started watching his movies, and I remembered this. I remembered it really differently from what it actually was. Yeah, I did too. Because in my memory, I thought that Montgomery Clift played Sebastian, and oh. the whole thing was in flashback. I think I had it confused, mixed up with – there's another movie from this time where it's like – where Salvador Dali did the, like, art direction, and there's, like, all this, like, hypnosis. There oh, are all these hypnosis um, sequences. Yeah, that's a Hitchcock movie, Spellbound. Yeah, I yeah. think I kind of had it crossed in my brain with that. But I definitely remembered um, Elizabeth Taylor – being like, we procured for him. We procured for him. And I remember 
when I was young watching that movie and getting what she meant, uh-huh. like understanding it. And it was one of the first times that I kind of understood like code from okay, a forties yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. And it and I felt very sophisticated that I understood it. And I understood that it was campy and silly, but also considered to be important and good. And that just was a very validating feeling for me. And I just, I loved it. So I wanted to rewatch it because I hadn't seen it in a long time. Yeah. And it really, it really does hold up. Uh, I mean, the, yeah, the plot is, it's Tennessee Williams. So it's, it's like overblown and melodramatic. Yeah. But, um, the language is so beautiful and the emotions he talks about are, are so real. And in his own weird sort of like self-hating way, it's, um, it's about gay rights. <laughs> Not really. Well, yeah. I mean, that was the part that I was like, oh, wow. What's that about? So I'll talk a little bit before we get into like the details of the plot. Uh, Suddenly Last Summer came in, came out in 1959. Uh, it only got, well, it got three Oscar nominations. So it was, it was like a big, it was definitely a big hit. And it was, I think, critically received sort of mixed. But uh, what well, you might have seen, but do you, do you know what the three Oscar nominations were? I was going to give you a little quiz. Oh, is it quiz. a quiz? Yeah, it's a quiz. Okay, best director? No. Best actor? Oh, I do know this. Best, okay. They both got nominated for best actress. Correct. Yeah. And then the third one is, I don't know, best actor? Uh, no, it was actually, well, now it's called production design. But back then, it was called um, best art direction. And it, it's oh. a, it's an award shared by the production designer and the set decorator. Oh, which, That's, yeah, I think it was good. Like, yeah. it, that, it was beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. Well, I mean, the, um, I think, like, the garden. I know, the yeah. garden. Oh, my God. I, for some reason in my head, maybe it's in the play, or maybe I'm just misremembering that it was a greenhouse. But I guess it's always been, a gar- like, an outside garden. I don't know. I don't is, remember. I think, is Night of the Iguana, is she walking around in a greenhouse or something? Or I garden? don't know Night of the Iguana very well. I, th- I don't really know it very well either. I saw it in college. I just know it's, like, you know... It's like a woman in her 50s wandering around in a garden yeah, crying yeah, yeah. about something. Oh, God, they all are. They're, that's it's what great. they're all about. They're so good. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I got nominated for those three. It didn't win anything. Um, oh. Ben-Hur was the big winner this year. Okay. Uh, it won a bunch. And then, um, yeah, Elizabeth Taylor and Katherine Hepburn were both nominated for Best Actress. I think now they would have put Katherine Hepburn in supporting. Even yeah, yeah. It's like. Yeah, it's sort of like, I don't know, it could go either way, but now they definitely would have not pushed them in the same category. I mean, I think that Katherine Hepburn would have been supporting because she's she's not in as much of the movie. Yeah, I wonder if, like, back then, if you were a big movie star, it would have been, like, an insult to even I'm be sure. in I'm sure. Probably. But um, the winner this year was Simone Signore for a movie called Room at the Top, which nope, I'm not really familiar with. never heard with. of it. And then Audrey Hepburn for The Nun Story. I've never seen that movie. No. And Doris Day for Pillow Talk. Which oh, really? I've never seen that movie either. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm surprised. I know. Uh, yeah, and then and then Liz and Catherine probably, like, canceled each other out or something. I guess so. Um, so, oh, one more thing. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the point in the three main actors' careers that they were at when this movie came out, because they were all at very different points in their careers. Okay. So Elizabeth Taylor was basically the number one star in the world in 1959. Yeah. She had just finished her contract at MGM, and this was the first movie after her contract ended that she chose to do. This is the first movie that she like was like, this is my movie, I want to do this movie. Um, and she insisted on her 
great friend Montgomery Cliff to be cast in um, in the role because he was in a real down point in his career. Uh, he had gotten into a really terrible car accident a few years before, and it totally derailed both physically, like his he had to get like drastic plastic surgery on his face, which changed the way yeah. he looked. And then he was also like, um, he became a, an addict and an alcoholic and he was basically uninsurable, uninsurable. Yeah. And so Elizabeth Taylor went to Joseph Mankiewicz, who was the director who, um, had directed all about Eve a few years earlier. So he was uh-huh. a big deal and would then go on to direct her in Cleopatra, right. which didn't really ruin her career as much as it ruined his career. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so he, so she insisted that he um, hire Monty Clift, uh, and then Catherine. Monty. Ha- well, I don't know. <laughs> oh my god! Okay. I feel like that was what his With friends called Monty him. Clift, Bob De Niro. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. <laughs> and then Catherine Hepburn obviously was older, and she was. I don't know. I I don't think she ever like had a career like I always compare her to Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, who really had like wild downswings in their careers. Uh-huh. And I don't think Catherine Hepburn ever. Hap- like that happened to her because I don't know if it was just the types of roles that she played. She was in more sort of like highbrow, like costumey movies. And then she also could do like, she was a theater actress. So whenever she had a slow movie career, she could go and do Shakespeare or whatever. Um, but she was like, you know, a little, I guess, past her prime, but she would have a big career renaissance after this too. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to see, cause she was definitely third build after Elizabeth Taylor and um, Montgomery. Montgomery. <laughs> Before we get into it, I just want to read the first paragraph of Paul Rowan's review of Suddenly Last Summer. And if you guys didn't hear my little intro episode that should be out at this point, um, I talk more in depth about Paul Rowan. And he you know, was this amateur gay film critic from Minnesota who compiled these books. So here goes. When Vito Russo wrote The Celluloid Closet, he was taken to task for being literal-minded in his approach to Suddenly Last Summer. Establishment critics complained that he willfully ignored the poetry and the symbolism of the Tennessee Williams drama on which the film is based. I'm not much into poetry either. What I like about Suddenly Last Summer is the way it taps into the lurid imagery of campy B-movie genres, most notably vintage horror and women's prison flicks. Not that the all-star cast ever realized they were making something lurid and campy. In 1959, the film was simply considered daring and adult. The irony is that in the intervening years, the cast itself has become the film's most supremely campy component. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think that what I like about it is that it is so... It's such a, it is, it has an air of a serious movie and an important movie. Totally. But then they're like uh, Catherine Hepburn coming down that elevator. I mean, there's just so much that is just nuts in there. Yeah. And I'm sure like they were, they knew like to some extent. I don't, I don't think he's right that like they didn't know that they were making something. I don't think that like those three actors lacked self-awareness. No, definitely not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I love, it sort of reminded me, not really in subject matter, but do you remember that movie Notes on a Scandal that came out with Judy oh. Dench and Kate Blanchett? <laughs> I didn't see that. It, cause that was similar in the sense that like, it had this sort of high sheen of these two amazing actresses and it was sort of like this position for like Oscar-y type stuff. 
Um, and then it came out and it's just like, it was just like a campy soap opera and it was so fucking fun. Yeah. And I remember it getting like mixed reviews and I don't think it like was that big of a hit, but yeah. I just remember like loving it even more when I knew what type of movie it was rather than what type of movie I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I think it's really cool when actors really, um, like play off their own image mm -hmm. or play off their own, um, like gravitas or totally, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like um, the pe the kids from Twilight do that. Robert Pattinson and... Um, and Kristen Stewart. Yeah, they sort of do that. I mean, they both have kind of taken on... For some reason, they're doing, like, the most, like, highbrow, fancy, like, foreign movies Yeah, now. well, they, I think they both just have amazing taste. And they're also, because of Twilight, they're able to, like, get these little movies greenlit that yeah. no one else in their peer group really could, probably. Yeah, but they're they're... Something about those choices seem feels so knowing to me, like mm. that they know where they came from and they're choosing to do this, these completely different movies. It's kind of an like the opposite, but it feels intentional and it feels related to their own yeah. careers and trajectories. And I think both of them, yeah, know sort of their personas and and like their skill sets. Like to like, I I think both of them are amazing actors and and Kristen Stewart especially. Um, she probably doesn't have like the biggest range in the world as far as like, but maybe she does. I don't know. But she, she just always, she always is like in the character and yet she's all, I don't know. She's always like Kristen Stewart. She's in, always, in she's always winking at you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, she's great. I love her. All right. Well, let's get into yeah. Suddenly Last Summer, written by Tennessee Williams yeah. and the screenplay, Cor Vidal. Yeah. Well, they both had credit, probably Tennessee Williams story by and Cor Vidal by the actual script, but they're, they both have credit on the, yeah. And Tennessee um, Williams, I think said like, he didn't really have anything to do with mm. um, the movie, but he didn't say that he hated it. And it, to me, it, it, I mean, I guess they added stuff cause the the play is like a one act, Yeah, but I don't remember it being that different. Really. I don't really know. I, I wanted to read the play, but I couldn't, I would have to buy it. Yeah, and I was like, uh, uh, a step too far. A step too far. Well, it was like last night I was like, Oh, I should read this. Oh, well. uh, I probably have it somewhere. Yeah, that's what I, I was yeah. like. I must have it, but I didn't find it. So, but I want to know. I'm curious to know um, how the end of the movie is different. Sorry, I keep jumping to the no, end no, of this, okay. but I do. I'm interested. I want to know, like, if um, they were able to say things that they didn't say in the play, and also if he. If if anything is explained any further. Yeah, I, I sort of don't think so. But yeah, we'd have to check. I, I mean, that was one thing about this movie. It I mean, it's still all sort of sort of in code, but it's pretty explicit. It's explicit. I think they ended up letting it go because, you know. Well, because he gets punished he at the end. Dies for, horribly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was like, it, I don't think it broke the code. I think that was what yeah, they liked. Yeah, they were yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. no, this is good. Yeah. Um, so at the beginning, we 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 first see uh, Montgomery Clift as Doctor Kusowitz or something. Yeah, the name is weird. Means sugar in Yiddish, maybe I have no idea. Not Yiddish. Is he Jewish? <laughs> I think he said Polish. Oh, Polish or okay, something. Something. Yeah. So he's like at this like weird state hospital trying to do an operation, and like everything's breaking down. The lights are yeah. going out, and he's like fucking up. He's doing a lobotomy. Yeah. At this old uh, institution in New Orleans, in a in a crumbling operation theater and then as when he finishes he looks up at the balcony and he's like 
gentleman. Of course, he's operating on a woman, and it's all men, white men in lab coats staring down. And he's like, gentlemen, I hope you never see anything take place in such a squal, like in such yeah. squalor again. This is the, these are the worst conditions I've ever worked under. And then he just storms out. Yeah. So th- was this the first operation he had done at this hot? He's like a traveling he's lobotomist. From, he's from Chicago. Okay, so yeah. he has a relationship with whoever. I, the head doctor. The head doctor who occasionally calls him son, but I don't think it's literally his dad. No, I, think I think it's it, yeah. like a so he so he's like the big doctor from Chicago who has come in to perform this new technology, this yeah. new surgery called lobotomies. Oh, because also this movie takes place in 1937, so it's yeah. like 20 years before it basically came out. Yeah, um, and I guess that's because lobotomies were more widely understood. By the, yeah, I think by, the by then 50s. probably it was already sort of being frowned upon. What year did Rosemary Kennedy get her lobotomy? I don't. It must have been in the fifties, right? I bet it was or before the forties, the thirties or forties. She was like a young woman. Um. So well, yeah, if you guys don't know, Rosemary Kennedy, one of the Kennedy sisters, was like a troubled teen, and her parents literally just like gave her a lobotomy and made her mentally. De- Sad. Sad for the rest she of her had life. She had a lobotomy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they went to... Okay. So yeah. So he's trying to do lobotomies and... Um, and then the, he gets a letter from... Uh, there's like the, the head doctor gives him a letter saying, Violet Venable, the richest lady in the city, mm-hmm. wants you to like come to her house because her niece needs to get a lobotomy and basically... Uh, if you give her a lobotomy, she's going to give the hospital a ton of money and we're going to be able to like renovate. Yeah. So he goes and he goes to Violet Venable. Violet Venable, yeah. Violet Venable's house. And it's this huge New Orleans mansion. He's greeted by like a, a oh, housekeeper yeah. a woman who lets him in and she and she comes down, Catherine Hepburn, in this like elevator like a carved like this opulent elevator she's and she's seated in it like a throne and it just like descends and it's very it's beautiful it's one of the most amazing screen entrances i've ever seen it's great and it's so weird it's so uncomfortable but you're like okay what what's going on i wonder if that that must have been something that they added to the movie because i don't think that they would have had the technology to like lower her Onto the stage, like family. Oh, they could have figured it out. Oh, come on! It's the theater, but I don't know if it was in the script. Um. Um, So yeah, she's and like it's Catherine Hepburn. She's like you already know she's crazy from the beginning. You know she's nutty because well, you know, I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to see this movie in 1959 because you watch it and you're like, there's no way that this person isn't going to be, like, a wild character. But I wonder if you're first watching it, if you're like, who's this? Oh, Catherine Hepburn, like, a proper lady. Like, we're going to trust what she has to say. A lady of the silver screen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So she's already a lunatic. Oh, also there's, like... (laughs) There's like terrible racist lawn jockeys in everywhere, the, like, all over the house. Weird, yeah, black nude men. I, I mean, I think that has to do with spoiler alert. Uh, her son's like weird racist sexual desires. Yeah, um, we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's very strange. I mean, it, it's disturbing. Um, 
So she takes him out to she she tells him the first thing she says is that she's a widow and she's a widow and she's in mourning because she just lost her son and that's why she's wearing all white. She's wearing like a white she's wearing a, like a lot of white fabric. Yeah, and she says it was her son's favorite color. And she says uh you know, if you lose your parents you're an orphan if you lose your spouse you're a widow but there's no word for losing your kids yeah which is that's is that like a thing that tennessee williams first said or i feel like that's such a um cliche at this point to say that but i wonder if that's where it derived from um i don't know i mean i think that's something that we've heard a lot i think we were even just talking about I, that yeah, phrase recent or we that were. that saying recently and which i had is no weird. idea that it was from suddenly last summer i didn't either but when she says it, she then sort of drifts off and stares into space and you kind of get the implication that the word that she wants is still widow. Like mm -hmm. it's it's very the way she talks about her son. She wants to fuck her son. Is incestuous, yes. very incestuous. She's got like reverse Oedipal disorder or oh, whatever yeah. that is. And she which is also the kind of shit I love about these movies, because I love like, I love that they, I love these, like, plays from, like, the 50s are so Freudian. I just think that's so fun. Yeah. Um, so she's, takes um, Montgomery Clift on this tour of her son's garden. Yeah. Because she says, oh, he's a poet. Like, and he, she wants, uh, he has not been like respected as a poet no one and she wants to like make sure that everyone knows what a great poet she's he like is. what what did your son do and she's like well his life was his vocation but he was also a poet and he, he wrote one poem every summer a poem yeah. for every summer that they spent together like in uh europe traveling so she and her son would travel every summer and he only wrote one poem a year and it was funny montgomery cliff Sort of gives her a little, like, side eye, like, oh, he just wrote one poem a year. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, it must have been hard. Yeah, and she's, like, and she's has no sense of humor about her son. Oh and um, she is in mourning because he just died. And um, it was, he died suddenly last summer. That's the name of the movie. <laughs> That's what happened. And he had a heart attack, and it's kind of mysterious. Why? Did, what happened? She doesn't really want to talk about it. She wasn't there. It come to find out that her niece, the person that she's trying to have lobotomized, was there and has since basically been driven insane. Yeah. But the conversation, she barely talks about the niece. He has to pry information about the niece out of her. They're talking. Niece by marriage. Niece she's by marriage. Um, they have to sort of pry the information out of her because all she wants to talk about is her son, her son's poetry, how fun he was, how how much he loved people and people loved him, what good taste he had. You get a, you have a full sense of who this guy is. Totally. Um, and all this is being told in Sebastian's garden, which she brings him out to, which looks like it's very gay. It looks like all of the rides at Disneyland combined yeah. together. She says it's like the Garden of Eden. Yeah, but it's like, it's a little haunted mansion, it's a little jungle cruise, it's a little Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, but I don't think they would describe no. it that way. They describe it as the Garden of Eden. And, um... Oh, and she um she feeds the fly to the Venus flytrap. Yeah, she goes and she has and the plants are, they're prehistoric and they're they're super strange and they're from, they're older than human life they're older than animal life they're the oldest i mean that's how they talk she says the dinosaurs ate these plants yeah it's like the dawn of creation from the dawn of creation 
Um, and the assistant comes out with this little box of flies and she has to feed them to the Venus flytrap. With like a tweezers. With tweezers. And they, they look at the Venus flytrap and, um, and then she gives Montgomery Clift her son's philosophy on life, which is that he believed that he had seen the face of God when they went to the Galapagos Islands. Right. And he, wa- and they, and he made her watch a bunch of um, flesh bird, eating birds, flesh eating birds kill turtles? baby sea turtles, and the horror of destruction, death, and carnage, and that is what life is. And when you stare into death and destruction, is when you see the face of God. Basically, is yeah. what they thought. Yeah, and like I guess that foreshadows his own spoiler alert: violent death, like the uh, next summer. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So they're having this, yeah, weird conversation. He's already, like, a little incredulous. He's um, a little freaked out, but he's, you know, along for the, like, every guy, like, every normal man in an insane old lady's house in a movie from the 50s, he's like, hmm, she's strange, but I'll go along with this. Yeah, yeah. And that's what he does. Um. So then uh, the mother and brother of... Elizabeth Taylor come in or they're in the house like stealing stuff. They walk into some sort of like sitting room or something um, where um, what's her name? Violet? Violet is Catherine Hepburn. Violet and Sebastian would have their um, daiquiris every day at five o'clock. It sounds like a dream, honestly. I love Louisiana. I feel like, oh my God. Anyway, so they go into the sitting room and her tacky relatives that you can tell she hates her the uh elizabeth taylor's mother and her brother are like ransacking sebastian's closet because um catherine hepburn told them that the son could have his clothes yeah and the the mother is played by mercedes mccambridge who um is like a i think like a lesbian film icon i don't know if she was oh, really? a lesbian but she was in also johnny guitar with joan crawford as like the very butch cowboy lady oh really yeah and they're like I feel like in Tennessee Williams plays a lot. There's sort of the the tacky, not as rich family members that everyone just sort of makes fun of or like has to deal with. Yeah, or like there's always there's always like a a Stella to the Blanche. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. So okay, so then um she kicks them out. Catherine Hepburn tells them to leave repeatedly. <laughs> and she's like, Can you she tells them three times to leave and they won't leave. And finally they get out. They sit down and she starts with her daiquiri and basically that's kind of um that's kind of where the he he ends up leaving her and saying, Okay, I'm gonna go and I'll I'll go to meet with um I'm gonna go to meet with your niece in the home for upset women or yeah, whatever. So she's she's, in. she's living she's not in the asylum yet. She's like in a nunnery or she's sort of in I think something? it's like a different asylum that's yeah. like run by nuns. Okay, yeah. Uh, so, but the plan is to bring her from that asylum to this other asylum where he's going to perform the lobotomy. Yeah. And she wants him to perform the lobotomy like the next day. Like immediately. Yeah. She's like, she needs it right now. Which is like 
Also, this is the type of thing where that's only in old movies. I mean, you would never have this added plot point of he has to go to this asylum and get her and take her to the other asylum. I mean, we would just now cut that and be like, just have her be in one asylum. We don't need these two asylums. That's true. It's just the kind of thing, I don't know, just, I don't think you would do that now. No, and it it is, but it was cool to like see, because the the first asylum she's in is like, beautiful sort of Spanish architecture. Yeah. It looks like a nice asylum. Yeah, but she hates she it, She hates it, because, yeah, she's, like, trapped there, and the nuns won't let her smoke, and so she, oh, God, the first time you see Elizabeth Taylor, a nun is yelling at her, and she, like, puts out her cigarette on a nun's hand. She's, yeah, so she's, um, they're in this library, and she, the nun is just watching her, and she has to get away, so she just hides behind a stack of, like, a, oh, yeah. a, a li- like, a bookshelf, and starts smoking, and the nun is like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm just smoking. And she's like, you're not allowed to smoke. So she cut, the nun gets in her face and is like, give me that cigarette, give me that cigarette. And she finally puts the cigarette out on her hand. And uh, Montgomery Clift is there watching the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And they talk about, she also just got in trouble because she was um, sexually assaulted by like a gardener. a gardener but then they're saying that she sexually assaulted him so there's kind of a mix up there about what happened and um it's one of those situations where you can't really tell is she crazy is everyone just saying she's crazy it's the thing of someone screaming i'm not crazy makes them seem crazy yeah um but he wants to know what happened suddenly last summer when sebastian died because yeah she was the only one that was there um, and she, she says she doesn't really remember. Yeah, she refused. She doesn't want to talk about it. And she says he just had a heart attack and she can't remember anything. And that's that. Uh, so then is she then transferred to the other he asylum? He gets her to come with, with him to the other asylum and says that in the other asylum she can wear her own clothes and smoke. Oh, right, right. And she gets a little bit more freedom. So they go to the new asylum and she's wearing she tells him in the in the nun asylum that when she's really very pretty when she can have her hair done she's got her hair not done for the time and she's wearing like kind of like a like a drab frock and then when she we see her in the next asylum her hair is done she's wearing this like gorgeous black dress she's got a she's got a big brooch on she looks beautiful her makeup's done she's like a different person She looks like Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, she was, looks beautiful in the first scene, too, but she's not supposed She's supposed to yeah, look yeah. like she's not. And is that the first time that she tries to kiss him? Or I don't remember. Because it's twice. She kisses him the second, yeah. Uh, and that, that's also, like, is he, is his character supposed to be gay, too? I think his character is supposed to be, like, in love with her. Really? Yeah. Because he never reciprocates. But I also, like, she's a mental patient, so maybe that's just I, an ethical thing to not reciprocate her kisses. See, I didn't really, I didn't, th- I didn't take it that way. I, I didn't really Oh, because he, that. both times, she is passionately kissing him, and he's just. Standing It reminds me still. of, like, how I used to make out with women. That's sad. Um, but I think, see, I think the first time he's, like, doesn't, he's kind of looking at her, like, a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he is supposed to be gay because of what happens at the end, but the way that um just the way that it plays out that he he won't give up on her and he's standing there while she kisses him and just maybe just because of the time that it was kind of loosely implied that they were going to like be together. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so 
then, like, I guess at this asylum, she sort of goes into a little bit more detail. Um, she talks about the summer that they were together, and um, she keeps she keeps repeating, "Oh, he became." Famished for blondes. He's he like gets, tired of the dark ones and was famished for blondes. He brings in, um, they bring in this nurse who's this like Swedish god. Oh yeah. And I saw at the end, he's, he's the last credited. I can't remember his name, but his, his character is just a blonde intern. And intern he, with an E. With an end. E at the end. And he comes in and gives her a shot and he's blonde and she starts like yammering about oh, that's what okay. oh he he was famished for blondes he he couldn't get enough of the blondes he talked about people like they were food what's next on the menu that one's delicious that yeah. one's appetizing that one is not appetizing and she's like falling asleep as she talks about as she just like rambles yeah there's a lot of like different um sedatives and like truth serums going on in this movie. There's a lot of like yeah, weird medications yeah. that may or may not exist. Like yeah, like there's some injection that you get that just makes you talk about what happened last summer and fall asleep. Like <laughs> yeah, there's it seems a lot like of stuff. They could have done that at the beginning. Yeah. Uh and so yeah, we go on and on at this asylum. She's not really saying what's going on. Um she's trying to escape. There's a couple scenes. One, she there's like a men's like rec room and a woman's rec room. And so, yeah, those are they're like common rooms. Common room, so yeah. the movie actually starts um, before you meet any of the characters. It starts in the women's common room of this oh, institution, yeah. and it's terrifying. They're rocking and rocking chairs and giggling and staring at wall. It's like American Horror Story Asylum, basically. There's like, and then you see one woman is playing with a baby doll. Yes, and it's like her baby. And then the nurse comes and takes her, and then that's the woman that gets the lobotomy. And then, oh, right. and then you see after the lobotomy, her doll is like cast aside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, I mean, come on, like that's beautiful. It, <laughs> so. Yeah, it, and it's very like if you've seen, I well, know you have um, American Horror Story: The Asylum. Yeah, like that's all that stuff is straight ripped off of this movie. And yeah, I'm sure other movies, other like movies it too. like it. Um, so she's, yeah. So, so her mom and brother come and they try to get her to sign over this paperwork that says that she's going to have the lobotomy. Oh yeah. And then it, it comes out there. I don't think, cause I don't think it was explicit until then that basically Catherine Hepburn is only letting the weird mother and brother have Sebastian's hundred thousand dollar inheritance. If they sign over, um, rights to, to her. Elizabeth Taylor to, for her to have a lobotomy. Right. So she, Elizabeth Taylor freaks out and runs down the hall and she opens a door, I think trying to escape the asylum, and she walks into the men's unit. And she's standing on a balcony, like an industrial metal balcony, and looking down and she is surrounded by these institutionalized men and she turns and tries to, and that's a really scary scene. I think every woman, like I used to do stand up at open mics and we did, we, me and my friend used to do this one in a basement and just, there would be no women there. Ooh. And just the feeling of like, you're trapped in a room with no one, but nothing but men. It's like, they're going to kill us. They could do anything they want right now. It's a very panicky feeling to yeah. be alone with just a bunch of men. So she she looks down and and they all start to notice her. She can't open the door. She's locked. And then they start to climb up the um up the railing to get her. And it was a really scary part to me. I I was like, and she she's panicking and she can't get out. And 
finally a nurse comes or finally she sounds the alarm and someone comes and opens the door and she goes running back to her room. Yeah. And you see the, um, like they cut back and forth between her and like close-ups of all the different institutionalized men. And they notice her and they start laughing and yeah. they get excited and they, they all can't laugh believe one at it. a time and then they all laugh in unison. Yeah. They can't believe that like this pretty girl walked in. Then Catherine Hepburn comes oh, to right. visit her. Yeah. And this is the first time you've seen Catherine Hepburn and Elizabeth Taylor together. Yeah. So for some reason, she has to go meet now with Catherine Hepburn in the sunroom. And they go in the sunroom and they see this other drab New Orleans family and they're all crying because everyone else is drab. Totally. And, they're, and, and, every, and these people are all wearing like, like brooches and yeah. fucking like white linen hat and like hats and all this fucking yeah, shit. Yeah, like New Orleans finery. They're okay. wearing their New Orleans finery. When they finally have their face off, Montgomery Clift is, like, determined to get to the bottom of what's going on. And so he makes them basically talk about it. And that's when Elizabeth Taylor says my favorite line, which is, we procured for him. And she basically explains that the reason that Sebastian was traveling with his mother was that his mother was still hot enough to attract male attention. And once she got to late middle age or however old she was, she wasn't doing the trick anymore. So he traded her out for Elizabeth Taylor. And that was the reason they were traveling together. And Catherine Hepburn will not hear of it. She says at some point, maybe later, at some point she, she insists that her son was celibate. Yeah. And that it's, and she, and this is more evidence that Elizabeth Taylor needs a, lobotomy and she's crazy she's rambling she's making up stories and she basically storms out and so yeah it comes out that that he i guess he had been traveling since he was a teenager i don't it doesn't say like how many years that they had been doing this i you never really even get a sense like i assume sebastian was only in his early 20s i think that sebastian is supposed to have been also older that sebastian oh is older than his early 20s i think he is also losing his youth. I think that's kind oh. of the tra- I think that's what's going on with Sebastian. He so his mother loses her looks, but he's losing his looks and he's not attracting those young people either. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. when he like finally falls at the end, I think that's like I think that he him bringing Elizabeth Taylor is him trying to like hold on to youth when he can't that do it. That makes sense. Uh and do you think like she is she just totally in denial about what was happening or is she straight up lying? Like, did she know she was pimping it? Like, she was, what, she was doing a, what she was doing? Or, like, was she literally, like, luring men back into their room and then, like, switching them well, out or that's something? that's one of my big problems with this whole story is, like, I don't really get how it would work. Because, like, most people that would be attracted to a woman wouldn't also be attracted to a man or necessarily. Like, if you're attracted to one person, you don't just yeah. immediately shift to the other person that they're with. Yeah. If you can't. Especially if they're, like, a different gender. I it's mean, unclear. I mean, a lot of it has to do with money and class, because, like, we'll get to it at the end, but he was The paying, money has a huge yeah. part of it, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make perfect sense, but it makes enough sense for what it is. Yeah, it makes poetic sense. <laughs> it makes poetic sense. <laughs> um. Yeah, and that's always been, like, a kind of confusing part of this movie. But anyway, so Elizabeth Taylor, or so Catherine Hepburn, I think, I think she's just sort of crazy and, like, in denial about yeah. it. And she knows what she's doing, but she, she, she'll she do anything for her son, but she looks at it as, like, a, 
like nobody needs to know this and it's not really happening because I'm not acknowledging it. Totally. Um, yeah, I think it's as much for her like personal sanity to not let this get out as it is for like, oh, society is not. Because I don't think, I, don't, I think she's so rich and they, they seem also like pretty isolated. Like I don't think society would even really care. Well, it is kind of, I mean, obviously, you know, it has been a struggle to be gay in the world for, I mean, forever. And like, it's just now beginning to be like accepted yeah. at a more mainstream level. But it is surprising. I mean, for someone in 2019 to watch this and to see like the <laughs> extremes a person would go to, to, especially because I mean, Tennessee Williams obviously had a very difficult life, but I mean, he was a gay yeah, man. Yeah, and he, he was, was, I mean, I, I never know with the people of that generation, like, how out they were. Like, they were, like, the the public at large, I'm sure, you know, didn't really know Tennessee Williams to be gay, but I don't think he was closeted to, like, his circle. I mean, anyone yeah. who was sort of on the like, ball, like, would, it, yeah, would, would know, would know right? would think. I think, I don't know. Um, but he obviously has a complicated relationship to it because, I mean, and Sebastian, if yeah, we haven't made clear, like, does not come out. It's not like he's this long-suffering guy. He's a monster, too. Sebastian ends up being, yeah, pretty bad um, guy. Yeah, because, and I wonder if ri this rich queer people back then probably did, like, go abroad to, like, fuck people and not but, like, let it. But, like, was it more accepted in Europe? Well, I don't, I don't know. It's probably a combination, maybe not more accepted, but at least like you didn't know anyone. So that you could always, you could always go to like the brothel or whatever and make sure like you would know that like no one you knew would see you there or something. I don't yeah. Know. Uh, so yeah, she had been doing this with him for years and then yeah, suddenly this past summer was when the first time that she was not invited. Um, and, and he brought his cousin Catherine. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor instead. And that's also sort of, um, so she, so Catherine Hepburn is jealous of Elizabeth Taylor and yeah. she's jealous. She's been, she, I think that her wanting to lobotomize her isn't just that she knows the secret. She was there when she died, but I think she wants to kill her because she got to go on the trip. Like, I think it goes back to Sebastian picked her over his yeah, own mother totally. and that's what her real jealousy comes from. And then on top of that, she knows the secret. And then on top of that, she's the last person who even saw him alive. I think it's like a sexual jealousy that's driving Catherine Hepburn. For sure. Which is cool. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, so then, finally, Mon Montgomery Cliff gives her the, the truth serum. Yeah. So then back at the house where the – back at Catherine Hepburn, Violet – Violet Venable. Violet Venable's house. Everybody's gathered. The Montgomery Clift, the main doctor who owns the asylum, Violet's there. Violet's assistant slash housekeeper is there. The aunt and the cousin are there. They're all there. Yeah, everyone's there. And he injects, and Montgomery Clift makes everybody leave and go out in the garden and then injects Elizabeth Taylor with the truth serum and kind of hypnotizes her, sort of. She's like, I think you're hypnotizing me. And he's like, do you? And she's like, I don't know. And then he's like... She's like, I can't stand up. Tell me to stand up. And he's like, stand up. And she does. And to me, I'm like, oh, this. See, that's when I was like, oh, this is like sexual yeah, tension between them. So. And so because he's trying to give her like basically one one last chance to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. Because the very next morning, they're scheduled for a lobotomy the next day. Oh, right? they're yeah, scheduled yeah. for a lobotomy the next day. Yeah. He's trying to save her. Yeah. And like the main doctor's like, well, if you don't do the lobotomy, 
we'll get some other doctor to do it. Cause he's, he's obsessed with getting this money from Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. She's building a big like lobotomy <laughs> hospital yeah. for them or something. And he really wants it. Um, so, so, so yeah, she comes out to the backyard, to the garden. Oh, but before oh. she goes outside is when she kisses him the second oh, time right. okay. and she really lays it on thick. And he, see, I thought that he was sort of reciprocating. See, to me, he just seemed like he was, he was standing there, like not. I mean, he just like, didn't, I mean, yeah, but I think like he didn't stop it and he no. was like, and it was a long kiss. That's true. And then the other doctor just opens the door and is like, come on out. And they're like, okay. Because like in that time, like you could just see a doctor like making out with a patient and not be like, okay, like you're fired. Like you're going to like, yeah. there are consequences. He was just like, oh, whatever. Not do what, an Eilish. Do, do what you will with her, but we want to have this conversation. So she comes out onto like the lanai, yeah. I guess. And, and everyone's there. They're all wa- sitting around ready to, for the show. So, and yeah, then she just does a monologue as like would an actor in a drama class. Who's I mean, it's like perfect because it's like if you ever need to audition for something like a theater school or yeah. something, just get that because it's pretty good. Yeah. And she just talks about how um, basically they went to somewhere in Spain. Was it in Spain? It's uh, yeah, Cabeza. Oh, yeah, because it's the the that the Castilian. Uh, I didn't know where it was. Cabeza de Lobo. So Cabeza like, de Lobo. Yeah. And they both, they pronounce it. The Spanish way. The Spanish way. They both do. And, but Catherine Hepburn and Elizabeth Taylor have like a slightly different, like Catherine Hepburn pronounces it better than she does there. Like, which I thought was yeah, cool. They're. Cause so she's like more, she's like the real deal. And Elizabeth Taylor is. Oh, that's true. Like, I think it was a choice. I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. Well, no, it's funny. Elizabeth Taylor, like doesn't really try to do a Southern accent except for this end. I feel like then she's like, she does like a Southern accent for this monologue. The Southern accents really come and go <laughs> yeah. in this. The only people that really have it are like the aunt and the yeah. cousin. They oh, have yeah. a thick, the one who I think has the most New Orleans is the, the head of the doctor. Oh, he okay, really yeah. has like a New Orleans sounding accent, but it's not, it, it also sort of comes and goes. So yeah, she gives her big monologue and, reveals that they went to Cabeza de Lobo and while they were there Sebastian bought her a white bathing suit and drags her into the ocean. Mm. She doesn't want to go and she has a flashback to it of her just like trying so hard to get away from Sebastian as he drags her into the ocean and they're right at the fence of this like public beach. Yeah because they're on like the private beach but it's right next to this public beach and so she's in this white sort of see-through bathing suit when it's wet and mm-hmm. getting all the, like, poor villagers horny for her. Yeah, he, like, dunks her in the water to make it see-through and then, like, makes her. And then she, like, once once she gets wet, he, she's allowed to, like, run out of the beach. Yeah. And she just goes and, like, is sad or something and takes off her, her swim cap. And um, everyone's all horny. But once the guys are all around and horny, I guess Sebastian goes over and does his thing. Does his magic. Like, and asks them, I base, and basically, like, I think, like, offers them money for sex is basically. Must be, yeah. And that's not even when, that's, then, it, that day ends, and then. Then for weeks, or days, or some amount of time, I don't know, she's, now she's wearing black and wearing a sun hat, and sitting yeah. at the restaurant, journaling, and he's off with the with guys. The dudes, yeah. And, um, and the, I mean, the ages of these men are very problematic. Some of them seem to be no older than 12 or 13. Some of them are like nine. And then some of them are like like, adults. Who knows? Well, she says that they're supposed to be kids. And she says some of them are older between childhood and adulthood, which is like, I don't know what that means. Teenager, I guess. So that, I guess, 
would be like if we in our if we're putting our our contemporary mo- like moral standards on it, we would that would be the thing that we would say is wrong. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Having sex with children. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so they could remake this movie. So they well, I mean, I guess like we would be opposed to. Yeah, that. Sebastian was like a Kevin Spacey character, which is like he sort of is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like which is unfortunate because I feel like that's kind of like a self-hating depiction but he did turn him he turned him into something that would be a monster but I don't think that Tennessee Williams was like that and like most gay men aren't like that but I think it's just like kind of a sad depiction yeah it was conflating I mean which still happens and like and not just with straight people obviously gay men like Tennessee Williams had I I mean mean, he he, that was his idea like I think I don't know I mean, that's it's really common for people to be have opinions about this um, or whatever. But yeah, so he, I guess he's with these guys for days and weeks while she's just journaling. But then the the kids keep asking for more and more, and they're like, they go to lunch, and Sebastian is like popping pills, and like he's like, oh my heart, I'm like I'm about to have a heart attack, I think, and the kids come to the restaurant and they start like banging on the like fence of the restaurant and they start reaching their hands out and they're saying pan pan like bread bread and um begging for food and begging for money yeah and then there's is it the same group of kids or another group of kids are also coming like banging pots and pans and like making this cacophonous music yeah i think it's supposed to be the same same but oh because then he like goes crazy and he runs away from the kids and he sort of winds up at the top of this mountain. And some of them, she says he recognized some oh, of them. He The from... older one. That's when she says Because they the had ones. left Cabetha. De... No, this isn't Cabetha. It's still? Okay. De... This is there. there. He wants to leave. He's like, he let's leave, get, right. let's go, let's leave. But he recognized some of them that I think it's like some of the guys that he had slept with from are the beach, in the yeah. group. Yeah. But it's not all of them. So they like chase him through the street. So he... She's like, let's call a cab in the restaurant. Let's go down to the harbor. And he's like, let me handle this situation. And he goes, he starts walking up the streets. So it's like up a hill. And he's being chased by these kids with like their instruments. Yeah. And they're making. And so when we're watching this, you're seeing Elizabeth Taylor tell this story. And then it's like flashbacks to what happened um, and oh, and you never see Sebastian's face. You see him; he's in the the white suit. I think it's the same white suit that the the cousin steals yeah. from him. Um, but you never see his face. And um, so he's walking. So he's like running away, and Elizabeth Taylor is like chasing behind and going up the hill too. And she passes this old woman, this old skeleton wearing a hood, and then she looks, and it's just like this lady selling flowers. And she's like, "Death is coming," and it's so hot. It's so white. The streets are white. The sky is white. His suit's white. It's like white, hot heat, super intense, banging percussion, and everyone's losing their mind. And then the kids, like, descend. He gets to the top of the hill. Yeah. And they have it set up like an altar. And the kids descend on him like the birds did to the sea turtles. And basically, like, rip him apart and kill him with their bare hands. Yeah, and you see his arm, like, this crowd of kids, and you see his arm just sort of, like, slowly descend into the the crowd. Um, And Elizabeth Taylor keeps saying, it's like, it looked like 
They devoured him. They devoured him. Because yeah, pieces of his body are, you know, ripped up and all this stuff. Uh, and then that's pretty much it. Well, well then Catherine, he- well, yeah. so then she comes out of it and she's like, she's cured. Catherine Hepburn, everyone's like, well, I guess that's that. They all leave. Catherine Hepburn then takes Montgomery Cliff's arm and she's like, oh, Sebastian, shall I have the boat captain tell us to set a course for home? Now our vacation is over. Another summer with Sebastian. So she just fully cracks, thinks Montgomery Clift is her son, has no idea what reality is, and just gets in her elevator and goes back back upstairs. So whatever. Classic Tennessee Williams Yeah, the end. That's where she she just got on an elevator. Because if she didn't, like, go totally insane at the end, I feel like it actually would have been good because she could have just been like, oh, see, that story is so crazy. Elizabeth Taylor is obviously insane. You have to give her a lobotomy. But instead, she cracks up. And then I want to know... Does he give Catherine Hepburn a lobotomy? Does he give both of them lobotomies? My guess is that he marries Elizabeth Taylor. Because okay. I feel like, I mean, then because then in the end she goes and like takes his hand and they like walk away together. See, I wasn't sure if that was going together to like be together or like going together and he's like leading her to the insane asylum to get a lobotomy. No, he's not. She's not going to have a lobotomy now. Because okay. she was like. Because she tell, she's she gets sane and the, Catherine Hepburn yeah. is the crazy But why one. did... Why does no one believe her until she, like, tells the whole story and then all of a sudden people think she's telling the truth? I didn't really get why. Like, it seems like a crazy story. Well, they, I don't think, they think that she's, like, she's being driven crazy because she's keeping the secret. Mm. So it's not really that she, it's like she's having these, like, violent outbursts. Like, she won't do what she's told and she doesn't want to, she, she's getting... So this guy makes a pass at her and then they flip it to make it that she did it to him and the nun provokes her and they make it like she attacked a nun. I mean, it's like there she's getting there's all this pressure from Catherine Hepburn to say she's crazy. She's crazy. I don't think her mom and her brother really even think she's crazy. No, they, they don't give the a money, shit. Yeah. They want the money. But once Catherine Hepburn loses her mind, she's not going to have a leg to stand on oh, to make true. them yeah. do it. So it doesn't matter anymore yeah. what she wants because now she's crazy. So yeah. they, they're going to get the money anyway now because she can't control anything yeah i guess so because she's incapacitated she straight up thinks montgomery cliff is her son yeah um and then yeah she goes back up the elevator to god knows where yeah and that's also how it is in real life you have to really tell the truth be vulnerable live in your story and otherwise you seem crazy but if you say this is me this is what happened then people will believe you wow what a moral what a story i think that's the moral or amoral that yeah. you could make up if you want to on a podcast. Sure. I mean, yeah, this movie has like a com- obviously a complicated relationship to homosexuality. Uh, and yeah, I guess it was sort of okay to put this out because he was such a monster and he gets That's such what punishment. I read. Yeah. I read that um, whoever was like in charge of it was like, this is still moral because of the horrible way that he's Like children killed. tear him apart from Lindsay. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Uh, yeah, man, this, this is like, this should be in the gay camp canon, like no questions. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, just Elizabeth Taylor's face when she's getting dragged into the oh ocean alone is yeah. like, that is divine. Like, that's exactly what, like her facial expressions look exactly like what divine did like oh, yeah. in the seventies. It's um pretty, it's like side by side comparisons. It was really cool. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. See. Uh, yeah, she, I mean, she was so beautiful and such a good actor. 
uh, but she had, I guess, yeah, this sort of little bit like bigger than life campiness. Even then, I think later in her career, you know, she sort more of played so, into but, it. But yeah, even like when she, because this was yeah the first movie that she was allowed to like like choose to do. And she wanted to do this script. And she did a lot of Tennessee Williams. I think she kind of was drawn to that. But also Tennessee Williams, like I said, was like writing cool parts for women. Like it's cooler to play like some over the top Southern victim woman who's always freaking out having having a monologue about your repressed memories or whatever than like. What else was she going to play? Like a housewife whose husband kills himself? Yeah. Or just, yeah, a pretty love interest. Or a pretty love interest. um, Or I'm sure she was offered lots of, you know, other women Femme fatale. Because this was before... Well, because, yeah, this this movie came out... Or this movie was shot right after her third husband um, died in a car... Or died in a plane accident? I think. So she was, like, in mourning. And this is before she obviously met, like, Richard Burton. But, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. The lives that these people led. Yeah. I mean, they must have been so tired. They must have been tired all the time. But they were hopped up on speed. They were all on speed. Yeah. So that's this movie. You can watch it on, I don't know, we rented it on Amazon, Amazon. I think. Amazon. It's bucks. like three bucks. It's yeah. worth it. It's really good. You it's should so watch good. it. It's really good. Uh, so one last thing before we go. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you and for having me. This has been fun. For being the first person to do this. I love it. It was a good experiment. It was fun. The second volume of Paul Rowan's High Camp books came out in 1997. There was no movie past 1994 that he included. So if we were to write a third volume and put in movies post-1994, okay. what would be your nomination to be in like the High Camp canon? A High Camp movie a to high go camp, in yeah. the High Camp. My choice would have to be, unfortunately for me, Velvet Goldmine. Why unfortunate? That's a good movie. I haven't seen it since it came out. Velvet like Goldmine is a great movie. Yeah. Velvet Goldmine is, well, I don't know if Velvet Goldmine would even technically fit fit in the camp canon. Remember, because, all it has to, and it just has to have intrinsic interest to homosexuals. Oh, well, it has yeah. intrinsic interest. Um, that is the movie that, when I was 17, or maybe 15, I saw the movie Velvet Goldmine. And it, as you say, uh, ruined me. <laughs> uh, it was, it, it triggered so many levels of, like, my sexual awakening. And it was like, and it was all, they're all gay in that movie. Yeah, yeah. But, like, it's this movie, you know, it's like so a it's Todd Salon, or not Todd, 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 Todd Haynes. Haynes movie about a character that's kind of based on David Bowie, but it's like a and very- another one that's sort of based on Iggy, Iggy Pop. Pop. Yeah. So it's uh, Ewan McGregor, um, Jonathan, Jonathan Rhys Myers, and Christian Bale. And Christian Bale is, like, the journalist who's investigating, like, whatever happened to, um, yeah. whatever happened to, oh, God, I can't remember his name in that movie, because I won't watch it, because I'm too embarrassed, because <laughs> it's like this thing, like- You'll just get too horny? I'll get so horny, I'll die. Like, I used to, like, watch that movie every fucking day. And, like, to to think that I would, like, my, the VCR, the only VCR we had was, like, in the main living room. So, like, people knew I was watching it. And it's, like, to me, it's, like, I remember it it's like as if I was porn. watching porn in front of everybody. But I was, like, this is a great film. This is art. I'm a film nerd, and I love film. But I really just, like, wanted to see Ewan McGregor's dick because he takes his dick out. And, like, and also I was telling you about it that... The thing, it's like, because 
it's sort of like Ewan McGregor is like the masculine and Jonathan Rice Myers is the feminine, yeah. but they're both men. So that's good for me. <laughs> so and Jonathan Rice Myers is like beautiful man. Like he's just got yeah, this. He was like, so gorgeous. And he's like pretty. Yeah. And he there's this one scene where he's dressed up like men in like the 1700s like he's oh, wearing yeah, like, like a restoration like a restoration Moliere style and like that's what that that to, that to this day is like i think like the hottest thing that's so crazy. like the guys in the favorite the yeah, movie oh, the yeah. favorite they were hot they were hot yeah. but it's like they were so much hotter because of their like makeup and stuff like i to me that's just like the hottest thing like wow. a guy with like white face paint and pink blush and like red lipstick and like a mole like a dot mole Wearing like a lame, yeah. <laughs> like I'm fucked because because that doesn't really happen. I mean, it only happens if you make it happen. <laughs> it happens if you make it happen. But I feel like if I went home and was like Brian, my boyfriend, like put this on, he I would do know, it for you. He would, but I don't know if that would do it. If that would, it's like I want that to be. It has to be organic. Sure. So do you think like Jason Schwartzman in Marie Antoinette is super hot? Yes. Yeah. And what about? Those SNL characters, it was like Mark McKinney and David Koechner would do those restoration fop characters. I don't know, but yes. Okay. I well, mean, I think restoration fops are hot yeah. and it's all hot to me. Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, great. Well sold. That's going in the, the third volume that I'm going to write. I'm, I have no um, intellectual property rights to this stuff. It's a fan homage. Yeah, I'm not paying any, or I'm not having anyone pay me to no. listen to this. Yeah. No. So we'll see. You're paying Amazon. You can, yeah. You can talk to my lawyers. <laughs> um, cool. I yeah. I need to rewatch Bubble Goldmine. I kind of do too. I just I don't know. I want. I'm. I also think it. I don't know if it's like that good. I don't know if I would still. I would think I'd just be so embarrassed. So like every turn, I would just don't know if I could get through it. But someone yeah. gave it to me. Oh really? As a gift because I wrote a sketch about it once oh. at UCB. So. You put it on by yourself and see how it goes. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if I ever stop watching it. Oh, boy. I may die of horniness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that is our very first episode of High Camp. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank Aggie you. Hewitt. This was great. Uh, do you have anything? This will probably hopefully come out, mm, I'm going to say, before the end of June. So okay. is there anything you want to plug that you're up to? Sure. I have a piece on Medium that I just wrote called Ooh. Fuck the Motherfucker. Um, it's advice for how to get through a breakup. I also have a Fiverr where I provide relationship advice. And my name on Fiverr is Aggie Hewitt. And my name on Medium.com is Aggie Hewitt. And I hope that you check all of that stuff out because it's my new business. I talk shit about your ex-boyfriend for money. That's Find me on Fiverr idea. and I'll help you. Uh, I can't wait to read the Medium article. And it's out today. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, and then also, obviously, listen to our podcast that we do every week. Goop Yourself. Goop Yourself. We talk about Gwyneth Paltrow and everything goop. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to have special social media handles for this yet. So in the meantime, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at RuckerBry. R-U-C-K-E-R-B-R-Y. I will put in after I finish recording this and figure out the next movie that I'm going to talk about is. So I'll always at least be able to tell you guys what next week's um, movie is. So you can watch it while we watch it and follow along. 
sorry, can I also do yeah. my Instagram? I forgot. Oh, yeah. I'm also at Aggie Hewitt on Instagram. Cool. Uh, all right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening and talk to you soon. Bye.